When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The UFOs are coming around the bend. Watch the shore I fly right in the sky. The fat lady sang the song. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of UFOs by Jared Wolf, a singer-songwriter from Mount Vernon and Knox County. He's our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. What do you think is Ohio's official state fruit? Go ahead and think about it. I'll give you a second. I mean, it's pretty common knowledge that the state tree is the buckeye. Let's see, the state bird is the cardinal. The state flower is the red carnation. The state insect is the ladybug. Lots of red there. Do you see a theme? Okay, I've given you enough time to come up with your answer. The official state fruit is the tomato. Yeah, I know. The answer was already given away in the title of the episode. You know, there are probably a few of you surprised to learn the tomato is a fruit and not a vegetable. But since that question is on just about every trivia game I've ever played, I'm hoping most of you already knew. The real question is, why the tomato? It's true, we grow it in abundance. Ohio is the nation's third largest producer of this cherished kitchen staple. Every year, we put about 6,000 acres of farmland to work growing it. But we own a much bigger stake in that blessed thing that gives us everything from ketchup to spaghetti sauce to salad trimmings. It was an Ohioan who made the tomato palatable. Before Alexander W. Livingston came along, tomatoes were a wild plant, the ugly duckling of horticulture. They were small, hard at the core, mostly hollow, with a tough ribbed skin. They also tasted bitter. For a long time, people wouldn't eat them at all, thinking they must be poisonous. Well into the 19th century, people added them to their gardens as merely ornamental curiosities, 
giving no thought to actually eating them. When they did finally start cooking with them, tomatoes had to be combined with other ingredients to be edible. You could not just take one, lift it to your mouth, and get a juicy bite. Now, in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, in the mid-1800s, Livingston had great plans for this underachieving fruit. And after 20 years, he produced the Paragon, a variety of tomato that was the first of its kind. It had a smooth, soft red skin, a juicy, tangy sweet center, and it was edible without cooking. So, Ohio, a state already known for its great inventors, can add one more to the list because Livingston was arguably the inventor of the modern tomato. He is frequently credited in the industry for being more responsible for the tomato becoming a commercial crop than anyone else. So it begs the question, would the tomato be one of the world's favorite foods if Livingston hadn't rescued it? I'll tell you the story and let you decide. Alexander W. Livingston was born on October the 14th, 1822 in Reynoldsburg, east of Columbus, to John Livingston and Mary Graham. He grew up on his family farm. Back then, Reynoldsburg was a pioneer settlement. His parents were Scotch-Irish and had come to Franklin County from Cambridge, New York in 1815, when the land was still a wilderness of primeval forests. He had a sibling, Ebenezer, who died at the age of two. That was the only mention of a sibling I could find. There was no formal schooling in the frontier at that time, but he learned to read and write and do simple math. But his real passion, even as a child, was in the natural world. He was chronically curious about how things worked. Why was the worm digging into the soil? Why did the grasshoppers sing in the same bush every night? He would try to hunt down the names of any bird he didn't recognize. He also had a particular passion for plants and weeds. Even as a child, Reynoldsburg residents considered him an authority on the subject. Livingston once wrote about the first time he saw a tomato. He said, I was 10 years old and running down one of those old-fashioned lanes, on either side of which was the high rail fence so familiar to all Ohio people. Its rosy cheeks lighted up one of these fence corners and arrested my youthful attention. I quickly gathered a few of them in my hands and took them to my mother to ask, what were they? As soon as she saw me with them, she cried out, you must not eat them, my child. They must be poisoned, for even the hogs will not eat them. But what are they, mother? I asked. Some call them Jerusalem apples, she said. Others say they are love apples. But now mind me, you are not to eat them. You may go and put them on the mantle. They are only fit to be seen for their beauty. Livingston later found purple and yellow tomatoes to 
add to the red one on the mantel. Then he opened them up and explored their insides. He found them to be hollow, tough, with a sour, watery fruit, which tells me he must have snuck a taste after all. Livingston lost his mom when he was just 17 years old. A year later, he got a job with a local seed farmer, making about 30 cents a day. He began to study and memorize different plants, their seeds, their traits, even though he did not initially imagine himself becoming a seed farmer. In 1844, at the age of 23, he married a farmer's daughter, Matilda Graham, and the couple started their family. Their firstborn died at the age of two, but they had nine more, six sons and three daughters, all of whom lived to have families of their own. Livingston was an outgoing man. Contemporaries described him as large, physically strong, in excellent health, and with a sunny and generous disposition. The couple leased a land for some general farming, 115 acres at the cost of $150 a year. Livingston raised stock and grew crops while saving enough money to buy his own land. And over the course of this period, his interest in seeds returned. By 1852, he had enough money to purchase 70 acres. He quit farming altogether and created the A.W. Livingston Buckeye Seed Gardens. In addition to selling seeds of all types, Livingston began his work to improve the tomato. People had gotten over their fear of them by then and were finding ways to consume them, but their imperfections made them an oddity not a frequent dinner guest. Livingston vowed to turn them into something the plant was not known for. Flavor, a smooth skin, a juicy interior, and a uniform size. He tried hybridization. That's the act of cross-pollinating two plant varieties to try and create a new plant with a desired trait. But when that didn't work out as well as he hoped, he did something that was much more simple, if extremely time-consuming. He began selecting seeds from tomato plants that exhibited the characteristics he wanted. He would stroll his fields, looking for a vine with better-than-average specimens. He would harvest their seeds, plant and nurture them, then look for the best from that batch before repeating this process endlessly. He traveled to various state and county fairs, introduced himself to growers all over the region, looking for the perfect candidates. It took 15 years and untold generations of plants, but this meticulous sorting process led him down the path to the one that bore the fleshy, juicy fruit that he had always envisioned. He introduced it to the public in 1870 and called it the Paragon, it was a great success. Livingston soon doubled his business's acreage. In addition to hiring works on site, he contracted with other farmers to grow seed tomatoes for him on their land. In 
1877, Livingston moved a few miles down the road to Columbus to expand his business opportunities. After a few years there, he handed the daily operation to some of his now-grown sons, and Livingston moved to Iowa with other sons, where they spent the next 10 years establishing the seed business in Des Moines. Livingston would go on to produce 35 varieties of tomato suitable for every taste, soil, and climate. His work enabled the fruit to become a commercial crop, even an international hit. Tomatoes had been cultivated to various degrees throughout the world. Europeans had been incorporating the wild tomato into their cuisines for a long time. But these new varieties from America were like an entirely new fruit. They were canned and shipped across the pond, and Europeans, especially the Italians, couldn't get enough. Livingston's work also inspired others in Ohio to contribute to the industry. In his footsteps was Bonnie Stewart of Wayne, Ohio, who grew a tomato so resistant to spoilage that the Burpee Seed Company still markets it as the long keeper. And at the Ohio State's Agricultural Research and Development Center in Worcester, Ohio, Dr. Stanley Berry developed two highly successful tomatoes that are firm, disease-resistant, and easily separated from the vine. In the business, they are known as Ohio 7814 and Ohio 7870. Those may very well be the ones you get when you pick some up to grow in your backyard. Livingston remained a scientist until the end of his life. He died in 1898 at the age of 77 and was buried at Green Lawn Cemetery in Columbus. Livingston Seed, the company founded by Alexander, was operated by the family for the next 150-some years, all the way through Alexander's great-grandson, Alan. The business was sold and has passed through various non-family hands in recent years, but it's still in operation in Columbus. As for those original tomato varieties developed by Livingston, they all but disappeared by the middle of the 20th century. So, in 1999, the Victory Seed Company began a long process to recreate them. Over the course of almost two decades, they had to hunt down seeds that still survived, grow them, then compare them to the historical record to ensure they matched field observations from original sources. Only in the last couple of years have they been made available to the public once again. So, if you want to know what a Livingston tomato actually tasted like more than a century ago, you can grow one. Even the original Paragon, the heirloom seeds, can be purchased at VictorySeeds.com. The place where this all began, Reynoldsburg, calls itself the birthplace of the tomato. They've preserved the home where Alexander and his family lived from 1864 to 1880. The Livingston House is at 1792 Graham Road, and it includes a museum that's open occasionally for tours. 
A historical marker outside at Graham and Palmer Roads says the house features seven bedrooms. They certainly needed them for all those kids, as well as two kitchens and beautiful hand-carved woodwork. It's been restored to look as closely as possible to the original, and it's finished off with period objects and furniture. Apparently, one of Livingston's employees, Benjamin Patterson, had been a conductor on the Underground Railroad, and the museum preserved the wagon that he used to use to transport runaway slaves on their way to freedom in Canada. Just a little side note, unrelated to the house, in case you visit the museum. If you do plan a trip to Reynoldsburg, next August would be pretty good timing. For 56 years, the town has celebrated its favorite son with a tomato festival. It's a three-day affair that includes tomato growing contests and, of course, fried green tomatoes on the menu. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Jared Wolf is 31 years old, and he's been playing guitar since he was 13. It helps that he's the progeny of a family loaded with talented musicians. He was born in Newark, but raised and lived his entire life in Mount Vernon. The song we're featuring tonight is UFOs. He said, and I quote, The song itself has no real meaning. I wrote it way back in high school, jammed on it with some friends, and started yelling about UFOs into the mic. Anyway, he said it started out pretty awful, but over the years he couldn't let it go. He kept tweaking it until it became what I think is a very cool jam. He plays all the instruments in this song himself. So, here's the song in its entirety, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And don't forget, if you're a musician or know of a musician, we would love to feature your music. Just write us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com and we'll get you on the show. Well, let's have another listen to UFOs by Jared Wolf. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.